This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Today I have something a little bit different for you, in that this has never been translated into English before, and I'm going to attempt the really dumb thing to do and use Google Translate. So, to that end, I have the speech of the Holy Father, Pope Pius XII, to the members of the Sacred School and the Roman Prelature on the reason for Christmas congratulations, issued 24 December 1939. The Fundamental Postulates of a Just Peace on this day, the holy and soft joy, venerable brothers and dear children, in which the longing for our spirit, yearning in anticipation of the divine event, will be satisfied in the sweet contemplation of the mystery of the birth of the Redeemer, serves us as a prelude to such great joy, the intimate joy of seeing the members of the Holy College and the Roman prelature gathered around us and hearing from the eloquent lips of the eminent Cardinal Dean, Loved and revered by all, the feeling so exquisitely affectionate and the congratulations that, accompanied and raised to the top by the flight of fervent prayers addressed to the heavenly child, are afforded to us by so many faithful and devoted hearts in this joyful solemnity of the holy birth, the first of the cycle of the liturgical year and the first Christmas party of our pontificate. Our spirit rises with you from this world to a spiritual sphere illuminated by the great light of faith. With you he exalts himself, with you he enjoys, with you he deepens in the sacred memory of the mystery and sacrament of the centuries, hidden and manifested in the cave of Bethlehem, cradle of the redemption of all people, revelation of peace between heaven and earth, from the glory of God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to men of good will, beginning of the new race of the centuries, that will adore this divine mystery, great gift of God and joy of the whole earth. Let us rejoice, we say, to all of you with the words of the great predecessor of ours, the Holy Pontiff the great Leo. Let us expel ourselves in the Lord, dearest, and rejoice with spiritual rejoicing, because the day of new redemption, of old reparation, of eternal happiness, dawned for us. For each year we are offered again the sacrament of our salvation, promised from the beginning, finally made to remain endless, in which it is fair that, with our hearts raised, we worship with divine mystery, so that what is accomplished by the great gift of God be celebrated by the church with great praises. In the celebration of this divine mystery, the joy of our hearts rises to the top, is spiritualized, exalted in the supernatural and tends to the supernatural, flying towards God with the excellent expression of the church's prayer. So that in the midst of temporary changes, our hearts will be fixed where true joys are. Amid the shock and tumult of the varied vicissitudes of the world, true joy takes refuge in the imperturbability of the spirit, in which, as in an indestructible tower by storms, it is fixed with confidence in God and unites with Christ, principle and cause of all joy and of all grace. Is not this sacrament of the king of our souls, of the child God of the manger of Bethlehem? When this real secret penetrates and nests in souls, then faith, hope, and love are raised in the ecstasy of the apostle of the people, who shouts to the world, I live no longer. I, Christ lives in me. When transforming man into Christ, Christ in person dresses man himself, humbling himself to him to raise him to himself 
and that joy of his birth, that is a perennial Christmas holiday, to which the liturgy of the church does not cease at all times to call us, invite us, and exhort us, so that in his promise that our heart will rejoice and will be fulfilled, and no one will take away our joy. The heavenly light of this joy and of this comfort sustains the trust of those in whom he lives and shines, nor can it be obscured or disturbed by some desire or fatigue, by some anxiety or suffering that sprouts or sprouts from this world, similar to that lark that walks in the air, first singing and then he is silent, content with the last sweetness that satisfy her. See Dante's Paradise, paragraphs 20 and 73. While others are frightened, while the bitter waves of waters of affliction and despair plunge the faint-hearted, the souls in which Christ lives can do everything, and rise above the disorders and storms of the world, with equal courage and ardor, to the song of dispositions and the justifications and the magnificence of God. Under the storms they feel superior to the storms, the earth that they tread and the seas that cross, more than by their immortal spirit, by the elevation of their hearts towards God. Sursum corda, by their prayer and union with God, abemus ad dominum. And to God, merciful and omnipotent, venerable brothers and dear children, we raise our eyes and our supplication as the best and most effective expression of our gratitude for your fervent Christmas vows, which are at the same time prayer addressed to the Heavenly Father, from whom comes all good grace and every perfect gift. Let him, who, in this union of prayers, each one of you obtained together with the, ma with the manger of his only begotten Son, made flesh, and who dwells among us, that good measure, tight, full, overflowing of Christmas joy, that only he can give, so that corroborated and relived by so much joy, you can genu generously and manly, as soldiers of Christ, continue your way through the desert of earthly life, until that sunset when, before your longing gaze, shine in the dawn of eternity the mountain of the Lord, and that in each of you, reborn to a new life of unfailing joy, the Christmas prayer of the church will be fulfilled, to confidently trust as a judge the only one begotten that we joyfully welcome as a Redeemer. But in this hour when the vigil of Holy Christmas gives us the sweet joy of your presence, joy is mixed and revived in us, and certainly not less in you, the sad memory of our glorious predecessor of holy memory, so piously evoked by our venerable brother the Cardinal Dean. And of the words, only a year has passed, unforgettable, solemn, and serious words, which flowed from the depths of his paternal heart, which you heard with us full of anguish, as the nunc dimitsis of the old St. Simeon, words pronounced in this room in the same vigil loaded with the weight of the foreboding, if not for prophetic vision, of the imminent misfortune, words of exhortation and warning, of heroic self-sacrifice, whose drowned accents still soften our souls. The unspeakable misfortune of war, which Pius XI foresaw with deep and extreme pain, and that with the indomitable energy of his noble and very high spirit, wanted, by all means, to move away from the strife of nations has been unleashed, and now it is a tragic reality. Faced with his roar, an immense bitterness floods our mood, and sad and worried because the holy birth of the Lord, the Prince of Peace, will be celebrated today among the deadly funeral thunder of the cannons, under the terror of warlike flying devices, in the middle of the threat threats and the snares of the armed ships. And as it seems that the world has forgotten the pacifying message of Christ, the voice of reason, the Christian fraternity, we have unfortunately that attending a series of irreconcilable acts both with the prescriptions of positive international law and with the fundamental principles of natural law with the same most elementary feelings of humanity, acts that dem demonstrate in which chaotic vicious circle the legal sense unfolds, deviated for pure utilitarian considerations. This category includes the premeditated aggression against a small, laborious, and peaceful people, 
under the pretext of a threat neither existing nor wanted and not even possible, atrocities, whoever committed them, and the illicit use of means of destruction against non-combatants and fugitives, against the elderly, women and children, contempt for dignity, freedom, and human life. The ever more widespread and methodical anti-Christian and even atheist propaganda, mainly among youth. To preserve the church and its mission among men of all contact with such an anti-Christian spirit, our duty, which is also intimate and sacred will of Father and Master of Truth, moves us. And that is why we address warm and insistent exhortation above all to the ministers of the sanctuary and to the distributors of the mysteries of God, so that they are always vigilant and exemplary in the teaching and practice of love, and never forget that in the kingdom of Christ there is no more inviolable or more fundamental and sacred precept than the service of truth and the bond of charity. With vivid anguished eagerness, we are forced to contemplate manifestly before our eyes the spiritual ruins that are constantly accumulating because of an intense flood of ideas that more or less intentionally or veiledly darkens and deforms the truth and souls of so many individuals and peoples, involved or not in war. That is why we think what immense work will be necessary when the world, tired of war, wants to restore peace, to bring down the cyclopean walls of aversion and hatred, which in the heat of the struggle have become so great. Conscience of the excesses that open the way inexorably lead the doctrines and the facts of a carefree policy of the law of God, we, as you know well, when the differences became threatening, with all the ardor of our spirit, we try until the end to avoid the maximum evil and to persuade the men in whose hands the force was, and on whose backs a heavy responsibility gravitated, to that they move away from an armed conflict and save the world unpredictable misfortunes. Our efforts, and those that, convergent, came from other places, did not achieve the expected result or effect, especially since the deep distrust appeared immovable, which, growing in the spirits during the last years, came to raise among the impassable spiritual barriers. The problems that were agitated among nations were not insoluble, but that distrust, caused by a series of particular circumstances, prevented, as with irresistible force, that faith be given to the effectiveness of possible promises and the duration and vitality of possible agreements. The memory of the ephemeral and disgust life of such attempts or agreements ended up paralyzing every effort to promote a peaceful solution. We were not left, venerable brothers and beloved children, but to repeat with the prophet. We expected peace, all our misfortunes, and at the time of relief only anguish is presented, and in the meantime dedicated ourselves to alleviate, as far as possible, the misadventures derived from the war. Although such action has not has been not little prevented by the impossibility, so far not exceeded, of bringing the relief of Christian charity to regions where your need is most alive and urgent. With unspeakable anguish, we have been observing this war for four months. Initiated and continued in such unusual circumstances, accumulates tragic ruins. And if so far, except for the bloody soil of Poland and Finland, the number of victims can be considered lower than feared, the sum of the pains and sacrifices has reached such a point which causes intense anxiety in those who it worries about the future economic, social, and spiritual state of Europe, and not only of Europe. Similar considerations about the present and about the future must be concerned, even in the midst of the fever of struggle, of the rulers and the healthy part of all peoples, and move them and excite them to examine their effects and reflect on the objectives and about the justifiable purpose of war. Fundamental Points of a Just and Honorable Peace and we think that those with a watchful eye look at these serious perspectives and consider with calm mind these symptoms that in many parts of the world indicate the evolution of events will remain, despite the war and its hard needs, arranged internally to define the appropriate and appropriate time, 
clearly as appropriate, the fundamental points of a just and honorable peace, and will not capriciously refuse the efforts on any occasion that are presented with the necessary guarantees and precautions. 1. A fundamental postulate of a just and honorable peace is to ensure the right to life and independence of, of all nations, large and small, powerful and weak. The will to live of one nation should never amount to the death sentence for another. When this equality of rights is destroyed or injured or endangered, the legal order requires reparation, the extent and extent of which should not be determined by the sword or selfish arbitration, but by the rules of justice and reciprocal equity. 2. In order that the order of this established way may have tranquility and duration, axis of true peace, nations must be freed from the past slavery of the arms race and the danger of that material force, instead of serving to protect the right, become a tyrannical violator of it. Peace treaties that did not attribute fundamental importance to a mutually consensual, organic, progressive disarmament, both in the practical and spiritual order, and did not take care to do it loyally, would reveal, sooner or later, their inconsistency and lack of vitality. 3. In any reorganization of internal international coexistence, it would be according to the maxims of human wisdom that all interested parties deduce the consequences of gaps or deficiencies of the past, and when creating or rebuilding international institutions, which have such a high mission, but at the same time so difficult and full of various serious responsibility, the experiences that resulted from the inefficiency or the defective operation of previous similar initiatives should be taken into account. And since human weakness is so difficult, we could almost say so impossible, foresee everything and secure everything at the same time of the peace treaties, when it is so difficult to be free from passions and bitterness, for, in particular, a point that should remain demand attention, if a better management of Europe is desired, refers to the true needs and the just demands of nations and peoples, as well as ethnic minorities, requirements that, if not always sufficient to support a strict right, when recognized and sanctioned, treaties or other legal titles that oppose them are in effect, however deserve a benevolent examination to solve them by the peaceful methods and also, when necessary, through an equitable, prudent, and concordant revision of the treaties. Reconstituted thus a true balance between the nations, restored the basis of a mutual confidence, many temptations to resort to the violence would be avoided. And fifth, but even the best and most fulfilled regulations will be imperfect and ultimately doomed to failure if those who direct the fate of the peoples and the peoples themselves do not let themselves be increasingly penetrated by that spirit from which life can only come, authority and obligation to the dead letter of the paragraphs of the international systems, that is, that sense of intimate and acute responsibility that looks and ponders human statutes according to the holy and indestructible norms of divine law of that hunger and thirst for justice that is proclaimed as bliss in the Sermon on the Mount, and which has moral justice as a natural precondition, of that universal love that is the compendium and the most advanced term of the Christian ideal. The Obstacles of Peace We do not know how serious are the difficulties that stand in the way of achieving these ends, which we have drawn to great lines, to be found, carry out, and preserve a just international peace. But if there has ever been an ideal worthy of the cooperation of all noble and generous spirits, if there has ever been a longing for a spiritual crusade that made God cry, that made the cry God wants it resonate with new truth, it is truly this very high ideal and this crusade and struggle of pure and magnanimous hearts undertaken to redirect the peoples of the murky cisterns of the material and selfish interests the living source of the divine right, which is the only one that can give that morality, nobility, and stability whose lack and need have been so missed, and for such a long time. We believe and hope that all who are united to us by the bonds of faith, each one in his position and within the limits of his mission, have his mind and heart open to these ideals, which are at the same time real ends of a true peace in justice and in love. 
so that when the hurricane of war is about to cease and disappear, there arise in all peoples and in all nations foreseeable and pure spirits, animated by a courage that knows and is able to oppose the dark instinct of low revenge, the severe and noble majesty of justice, sister of love, and companion of all true prudence. Of this justice that is the only one capable of creating peace and ensuring it, we and with us all who listen to our voice do not ignore where we are given to find the sublime specimen, the intimate impulse and the sure promise. Transamus usque Bethlehem et videmus. Let's go to Bethlehem. There we'll find lying in the manger the, son, the born son of justice, Christ our God. Next to her, the Virgin Mother, mirror of justice and queen of peace. With the holy custodian, Joseph, the man fair. Jesus is the expected of the people. The prophets pointed it out and sang their future triumphs. And he will be called a wonderful counselor, strong God, everlasting father, prince of peace. See Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. When this heavenly child was born, another prince of peace settled on the banks of the Tiber and had solemn ceremonies dedicated to the Arapracis Augusta, whose wonderful but broken remains, buried for centuries under the ruins of Rome, have raised their heads in our day. On that altar, Augustus sacrificed in honor of unsaved gods. But it is lawful to think that the true God and eternal prince of peace, who a few years later appeared among men, has heard the desire of that time for peace, and that the peace of Augustus has been like a figure of that supernatural peace that only he can give in which all earthly peace is necessarily understood. That peace conquered not with iron, but with the wood of the cradle of this infant lord of peace, and with the wood of his future cross, of death, sprinkled with his blood. Blood of not, not of hate and resentment, but of love and sorry. Let us then go to Bethlehem, and to the grotto of the newborn king of peace, sung on his cradle by the choirs of the angels, and kneeling before him, in the name of this restless and shaken humanity, in the name of the innumerable men, regardless of people or nation, who bleed and die, who are fallen into tears and misery, or have lost their country. Let us direct our invocation of peace and harmony, help and salvation, with the words that the church puts on these days on the lips of her children. O Emmanuel, rex et legifer noster, expectatio gentium et salvator erum, come to the salvendum, nos domine deus noster. While this prayer we unleash our aspiration for peace in the spirit of Christ, mediator of peace between heaven and earth, with his kindness and humanity appeared in our midst, and we warmly urge the faithful Christians to associate with our intentions also his sacrifices and his prayers. We impart, venerable brothers and dear children, to you and to all who carry in your heart, all the men of good will who are scattered on the face of the earth, especially those who they suffer, to the persecuted persecuted, to the prisoners, to the oppressed of every region and country, with unchanging affection, as a pledge of thanks and of heavenly consolation and reliefs, the apostolic blessing. At the end of this, our speech, we do not want to deprive ourselves of the joy of announcing you, venerable brothers and dear children, that a telegram, telegram arrived to us this morning from the Apostolic Delegation of Washington, whose preliminary and essential part we want to read. The President, having called this morning to Monsignor Spellman, Archbishop of New York, after colloquium with him, sent him to me along with Mr. Burrell, Secretary of State, giving me a letter for His Holiness, which I transcribe here, according to the desire of the same President, literally. In it, the president decides to appoint a representative of the president with the rank of extraordinary ambassador, but without a formal title, together with the Holy See. This representative would be the Honorable Myron Taylor, who will leave for Rome in about a month. The news will be officially published tomorrow. Follow the text of the letter in English, which will be published in La Servitor Romano. It is a Christmas announcement that could not reach us more pleasant, since it represents, on the part of the eminent head of such a large and powerful nation, a valuable and promising contribution to our requests, 
both for the attainment of a just and honorable peace as for a more effective and broader intelligence aimed at alleviating the sufferings of the victims of war. For this we have to express here, for this noble and generous act of, of President Mr. Roosevelt, our congratulations and our thanks. Given in Rome on Christmas Eve, 1939, Pope Pius XII.